emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our interview with Johan Norberg. Ron, how's it going? I'm great, Ed. How are you? Good. Well, I am just thrilled to have our guest on today. You and I have both been admirers of, of Mr. Norberg for quite some time, so we can't wait to talk to him. I've been, as you usually say, marinating in his work for the last couple of days here to get ready for this interview, <laughs> and uh, really, really looking forward to it. Let me let me just read a quick bio and welcome him to the to the show. Uh, Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a writer who focuses on globalization, entrepreneurship, and individual liberty. Norberg is the author and editor of several books exploring liberal themes, including the one that we will discuss in depth today, and that is Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. He studied at Stockholm University from 1992 to 1999 and earned an MA with a major in, ready for this, Ron, The History of Ideas. Love that. Uh, he is also a member of the International Mount Pelerin Society. That's something that's come up on the show a couple times, so maybe we'll get a chance to ask him about that. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Johan Norberg. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, I first want to ask you, and in one of your bios, it mentioned that you have made the transition from being a left anarchist to classical liberal. So I'd really love to hear about that transition in your mind. Ron and I had done a show about changing our mind in the last couple of months, and I want to hear your story of how your mind changed. Yeah, it's um, that rarely happens. That's my impression that people completely change their worldview. And, um, well, in a way, I had already, uh, when I was an anarchist, uh, some of the elements that make up my worldview now as well, uh, specifically uh, a distrust of power and a distrust of government. But I combined that once upon a time with a distrust of basically anything that was big, so big business and industry and modern civilization uh, as a whole. And uh, many environmental themes and other things made me think that oh, there must have been some better good old days um, once upon a time before we had all these things that ruined um, our way of life and ruined nature and uh, harmony between people and and so on. And that led to my somewhat leftist uh, form of, of anarchism. Um, and I think what began to change my mind was really studying history and realizing that those good old days were actually pretty awful to most people and to my ancestors in northern Sweden in the late 19th century, whose lifestyle I had sort of admired from afar uh, when I just saw the pictures and heard the stories. But then realizing that life before industry, before trade, before the railway, it meant basically bad weather resulted in a crop failure and it resulted in starvation and uh, and hunger. So that began to change my mind on uh, the benefits of modern industry and modern capitalism. And then I just took it from there. And yes, the, the famous quote, of course, is the, that life was nasty, brutish and short, which which I have to say, one of the, the things that struck me about your book is how well you portrayed that for me. There was there was sometimes when I was reading the book where I had had this this really visceral reaction to some of the things you were talk talking about because I hadn't really thought about it as much. And I'm you know I'm very much in favor of, of progress, but uh, hadn't really thought about how awful it really was a- across the board. And I don't think that we have any kind of appreciation for 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 that today. It's really hard for us as modern people to even get a, a basic sense of what that was like. And I think your your book does a, a great job with that. 
Well, thank you. And it, I think often it's uh, the thing that convinces me is uh, the fact, the data, the statistics on uh, this nasty, brutish and short uh, life that people led back then. But I think the thing that convinces a lot of people uh, emotionally is sort of the tiny details of what life was really like when they didn't have access to uh, modern technologies and uh, science and wealth. And one of them being, I mean, if you ask people, so here's a time machine and you can go live in any kind of era, uh, just pick your favorite one. But before you go, uh, just remember this, uh, you wouldn't have a water toilet. And the fact that the the kings and the emperors and the wealthiest people on the planet throughout all of uh, history until now, they didn't have, well, plumbing and sanitation. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that, uh, and it was very difficult to really separate uh, your waste from the places where you got your water and uh, uh, where you had your livestock and things like that. That makes a pretty dramatic difference. And, and again, another theme in the book is, uh, other than exploring how difficult it was, was just the, the overwhelming number of statistics. I don't know how anyone can read your book and not come away uh, convinced, first of all, that things are better. But And we'll talk more about that because you do have a great epilogue on that. But let me just, just share one, one of them that, that struck me particularly, which was a, a child born today is more likely to reach retirement age then his forebears were to live to their fifth birthday. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I, had, I, had, I, I read that sentence and I had to pause for probably three or four minutes just pondering that, that notion. That, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty shocking. It was really nasty, brutish, and short uh, life back then. And, and if you look at the national statistics uh, 200 years ago, there was not a single country on the planet with a life expectancy longer than 40 years, not even the richest ones. Uh, today, there's not a single country where life expectancy is shorter than 40 years, not even the poorest ones. So it tells you that we've done something right when it comes to access to nutrition, safe water, medicine, antibiotics, and things like that. Yes, I, I love this one too. Is is if you sometimes hear about the short working hours of the ancient past, don't be too envious. People worked as long as they could; <laughs> they just didn't have the, the the caloric energy to 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 actually work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was an awful um, catch twenty two back then. Uh, Angus Deaton, the Nobel laureate, has called it a nutritional trap. Even in the richest countries like Britain and France, some two hundred years ago, basically people couldn't work long and hard enough to get so many calories so that they could work a sufficient number of hours to get all the calories they needed. And so it's really a pretty new phenomena that we've, we've got this excess. And, and let's, let's talk about some of the stories that you share. And I, I, it's, it's in the book and people can read it, but I, I would like to ask you about it. Who is a guy by the name of Norman Borlaug and why do we not know about him and why should we know about him? Oh yeah, uh, he is. Uh, might he might be the person who saved the most lives uh, throughout human history? Uh, some people claim that he has saved the lives of a, a billion people, or or even more than that. Uh, but he's remarkably unknown. Almost no one I talk to really know about him unless they do some research in within those subjects. Well, he was an agronomist from Iowa, and uh, he was this. He was an optimist. Some some people tell me that if if you're too optimistic, then you just then you don't have to do anything about the world's problems and you just relax. That's not really the case. Being an optimist means that you can see the potential and how science, technology, and trade can solve problems. And so he saw the problems of the world: the chronic undernourishment, the millions of people who died every year because they didn't have access to food. And he was obsessed in trying to come up with. Uh, better crops uh, so that uh, food could go further, but also the whole system of modern agriculture with uh, everything from modern irrigation to uh, pesticides to um, paying farmers for their food rather than having all the price controls that uh, lots of countries had around the world. So he started in the 1940s in Mexico in trying to come up with um, then high yield crops and uh, he came up 
and his team with a um, after thousands of crossings of wheat with a high yield hybrid that uh, could go much further and uh, with these changes in the agricultural system it also helped in taking Mexico from chronic undernourishment to actually being a net exporter of wheat quite rapidly. And then he did the same thing in India, in Pakistan, places where people, all the uh, doomsday mongers said that whatever you do now in the 60s and, and so on, people like Paul Ehrlich and others said that we'll see massive starvation in these places. Um, but he, Norman Borlaug, he went there with his team, helping them to get access to these crops and changing the agricultural system. And these, despite all the problems, difficulties, uh, pessimism, protectionism, even a war between India and Pakistan while he was working there, um, but actually working tirelessly throughout the war, planting seeds sometimes within sight of artillery flashes, that helped to not just making them self-sufficient when it came to um, cereals, but uh, actually helping to improve the harvest about sevenfold in such a short era. And then those discoveries and those new technologies, they've spread throughout the world uh, because of Norman Borlaug and his team. So he's one of the greatest beneficiaries of, of mankind ever. More people should know about him. Absolutely, and I want to th thank you for for bringing him to my attention. I'd I'd sort of heard the story because I was a big fan of of Penn and Teller's show, but uh, but but you know only remember briefly hearing about it. But now he's certainly going to be somebody that I that I talk to. You you do acknowledge, and, and another great admiration that I have for you is that there are some negative side effects of, for example, some of Borlaug's methods. Right, the the uh, the intensive farming, the over extraction of groundwater water and nitrate pollution. But you always like, counter that with, but it, 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 on, on, a, on a side note, it also saves farmland from being, or, or pristine land from being turned into farmland. farmland. So I, I think it's important that you always show those counter arguments. Was it important for you as you wrote the book to, to always keep those things in mind? I think it is very important. Uh, first of all, because that's the intellectually honest thing to do, to to tell people that nothing is perfect and there are always some side effects and unintended consequences of everything that we do. And I think that's important if you want to be credible as well to acknowledge that. But I think it's important in another way as well, because I think that a lot of people, they miss, have a misunderstanding of what progress is about. They think that if it is to count as progress, it has to be perfect. It has to be this, this perfect, sustainable solution that will work for all eternity, basically, with no side effects. And then they compare that ideal to what they really see in the world. And of course, they'll see problems. They'll see that many of the solutions that we've had to extend lifespans and feed the world, they've resulted in negative side effects. And then they just say, okay, then it's not progress because then it's sort of tainted uh, because of this. So we have to search for something else, something perfect, some sort of utopian solution, which of course they, they never find. Uh, but I think that is a dangerous misconception because uh, that will always lead us to um, disqualify all the changes that take place throughout the discovery process, uh, through trial and error, experiments, because it will never be perfect. We will never reach this perfect, uh, sustainable solution, because every solution is tentative in a way. It's always built on experiments and trial and error. And then after a while, that solution is exhausted or there are side effects that are negative so then we have to turn to the next solution that's what mankind has always done to make progress if you look at it when it comes to food i mean we got better crops and that helped to to save the world but then we also saw the growth of monocultures and there's a difficulty with that if there's one disease that affects it it might result in local uh, famine so then we have to discover chemicals and pesticides that deal with that. But then we discover if we use too much of it, that's an environmental hazard. So then we have to deal with that as well. Uh, that doesn't mean that progress isn't real. It means that we constantly have to push forward because there's always some pushback. We always have to experiment in new ways and, and never sort of give up and say, okay, now we're done and now we, we, can, we can just rest. Yeah, one of, one of the laws of systems thinking, right? Today's problems always come from yesterday's solutions. So, 
so good. Well, we're up against our first break here with Johan Norberg, and we want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where we will post show notes for our interview with Johan Norberg, as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, we want to remind you that you can uh, get a hold of, of us and then uh, our and our sponsor for this segment is Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If Google can't find you, do you exist at all? At Leading Results, we want to help you get found locally, both in search engines and directories. We want to help you have an outstanding reputation online. And we want to help you get those blogs written and interact on social media. Simply put, Leading Results helps customers find you. By working with our team, your practice grows and your profitability improves. Focus on what you do best and delight clients. Leave the marketing and lead generation to us. To learn more, go to leadingresults.com slash packages. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Johan Norberg, and he is the author of Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, published in 2016. Johan, I love this book. It's a treatise of factual or evidence-based optimism. And and you start out by saying we've made more progress over the last hundred years than in the first hundred thousand, which is really remarkable when you sit back and think about that. And and I know the book deals with 10 major areas, and we're not going to go through all of them because we really do want you folks to get this book. It, it, it is just a fantastic read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But you deal with food, sanitation, life expectancy, poverty, violence, the environment, literacy, freedom, and equality. And then you have a chapter on the next generation, which I found really useful as well. Um, And it's just great because it's full of facts. And I just don't know how anybody can come away from this book not feeling optimistic about the progress we have made as a a civilization. Um, And I guess... You've already discussed with Ed about the food chapter a little bit, Norman Borlaug. I wanted to ask you about famines, because famines used to be pretty common, and now they're almost they're almost gone, and they never take place in a democracy. Can can you talk about the famine issue? Yeah. Um, well, we've seen generally better access to food than. Uh, ever before in the last uh, 50 years or so. Uh, After the Second World War, probably around 50% of the world population lived in chronic undernourishment. They didn't get enough food, every second person on the planet. Today, it's around uh, every 10th person, around 10% in chronic undernourishment. But there's a particular version of of undernourishment that's uh, even more uh, awful, and that's what you're getting at. It's famines, the great famines that we still talk about, and, and they do happen once in a while. But that used to be a regular occurrence. Uh, if there were problems with with the weather, with um, the the agricultural system, we saw massive famines. And uh, it used to be when we go back in history, the uh, 100 years ago, every decade, uh, around 15 to 30 million people 
died in famines every decade, despite a much, much, much smaller world population. So it was a regular occurrence. Uh, it it was a regular it used to be a regular occurrence even in in Europe, but but definitely in in Asia and places like that. That began to decline quite dramatically, and uh, now it's it's. I mean, less than one million people per decade uh, regularly die in, in famine. So why why is that? Well, one um, way, way of looking at it is just to look at the places where we've seen famines even in the last few decades. And it happens to be places like Ethiopia in the 1980s, like North Korea recently, and uh, a couple of countries where they've had dictatorships, they've had communism, or they've had war. That's the, the places, the only places where um, we've had famines. So in other words, the only places where rulers or warlords have not allowed agriculture and trade to function properly. Um, it seems like democracy is one of the most potent weapons against famine. There have been famines in communist states, in absolute monarchies, in colonial states, in, in tribal societies, basically every place, uh, but never in a democracy. Even poor democracies like India and Botswana have avoided starvation, uh, despite having poorer food supply than many countries where disaster has struck. Uh, and it seems like it's a combination of factors. Uh, more open societies, their uh, information, news spread uh, quicker so that traders and governments can respond much uh, quicker. Uh, and that, that in itself seems to be very important, just information. It seems like in some places, some dictatorships where we've had famines, even the rulers were sort of... Um, uh, deceived by their own men, by their own yes-men, who just said that, like, everything's fine, we don't have to worry about anything, because they just strangled information. Right. I think of Venezuela and, and you know, the government passing out rabbits to everybody, you know, the supposed bug, bug, Bugs Bunny diet. Um. <laughs> exactly, and they have a problem now that some families grow attached to their rabbits and think they're <laughs> cute pets rather than eating them. So exactly. they have to have government propaganda against rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving but exactly, on they've done everything wrong, basically, in Venezuela. They've had an almost communist system with drastic price control so that the farmers do not gain anything from production. So they've basically given up or smuggled it to other places. And at the same time, they've restrained information, they have censorship and, and all those things that really lead to, to undernourishment. Right. And and boy, in this age of plenty, that's just, I, I don't know, it's beyond words <laughs> what's going on there. Uh, it's, so, it's so unnecessary, I guess. Uh, moving on to the life expectancy chapter, this is another cause for, I think, massive celebration. You you say that before 1800, there was not a single country in the world where the life expectancy was above 40. Today, it's, it's 71. Uh, and between 1950 and 2011, the world population went from 2.5 billion to 7 billion. And I love this. You say not because people bred like rabbits but because they stop dying like flies. How'd that happen? Yeah, this is the perhaps the greatest achievement. Uh, it's, it's difficult to um, sort of get the historical data if we're going really uh, a long way back in history, thousands of years, but it seems like life expectancy in almost any kind of society has been around 20 to 30 years, uh, as long uh, far back as we can we can see. Uh, but then suddenly everything happened at once during these last 100 years. And it's a combination of factors. Uh, access to nutrition uh, is, is one of them. Safe water is one of them. Uh, wealth generally uh, helps uh, to, to give people access to everything that they need. Things like just having access to electricity, which is important to... Uh, make sure that the food is uh, survives a, a longer period, but so does medicine and drugs. And, and the revolution in medicine in the last 200 years is obviously one of them. The discovery of anti antibiotics. Uh, all those things have had a dramatic impact. I, I recently read two 
stories in the same magazine about, uh, and I think side by side, it kind of shows how, how long we've gone in, how far we've gone in this last 200 years. One of them was about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, it turns out that researchers now claim that he probably died of a sore throat. Uh, that's how you died uh, if you were the world's greatest composer 200 years ago. You had a sore throat, some bacteria, the doctors couldn't do anything, so you died. The other story was about Ten, a 10-year-old called George, and George had a brain tumor, uh, but now the surgeons can do something about it, so after some brain surgery, they removed the tumor, but it was a difficult operation, so his heart stopped beating. Um, but then they managed to revive him, get the tumor out, and he was recovering quickly, and he was now back to his old self. And that's that's amazing in itself. I mean, no one in Mozart's day could think that we could dream of us having that kind of technology. But it gets even more astonishing when you realize that George is not a human being at all. He's a goldfish, actually. So basically, the goldfish (laughs) and the pets of today get better access to treatment and medicine than the greatest composers and kings had 200 years ago. And that has really made a remarkable difference when it comes to life expectancy. For pets as well. And and the other thing you point out that I find fascinating is you talk about infant mortality declining from 154 to 35 per thousand births between 1960 and 2015. And and these are in like developing and even poorer countries. Even Haiti has improved in infant mortality. And there's another untold story, just the rapid decline or the decline of infant mortality compared to the old days. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And and Haiti is an interesting example because it's one of the few countries where the economy hasn't really improved since the 1950s. They're not much richer than they were back then. Uh, and yet they've managed to reduce infant the infant mortality rate by almost two thirds. So it's in, in a way, it's not increased income. It's lower prices. It's it's lower prices on all those things that make for a longer life. Um, access to electricity, to uh, drugs, to medicine, to food, and, uh, which is a result of uh, human discovery, of um, scientific and technolo- technological development that has reduced everything in price and trade so that it's accessible even in places like Haiti. So so that's important. Um, child mortality, infant mortality makes a, an enormous difference when that declines. In some countries that make the most rapid progress right now, African countries like Kenya, uh, like uh, Ethiopia, like Rwanda, they have actually increased their life expectancy by 10 years over the last 10 years, which sounds mathematically impossible. It sounds like no one died. But that's because of this dramatic reduction in um, infant mortality. And if you save the life of, of a child, then he gets another 50, 60 years in, in expected uh, life years. Sure. That, that's just inspiring. Well, Johan, this is fantastic. We're up against another break, folks. I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Abacus Next. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And welcome back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest today is Johan Norberg, author of Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, I have many more reasons to look forward to the future after after reading this book. It's just a a, a great read. Um, Johanna, I ask you, I've got a, a couple of things that are kind of U.S. based here. The first one is your book doesn't talk all that much. There are there are little snippets, but all that much about Native American cultures. And there's definitely a myth floating around in the U.S. that they lived in a u- utopia until the Europeans came along. Do you have any insight in, into that, what was life was like for the tribes that inhabited the U.S. and, and Canada especially? Well, you know, this is not an area where I'm and I've got an expertise, um, but I, I think it's uh, important to notice that uh, m- many of the the ways of of life uh, back then, uh, just like they were in uh, in in Europe before settled agriculture, was based on a kind of uh, exploitation of nature that uh, made it difficult to sustain larger, very very large populations. And um, obviously, in times of um, uh, when the population has had expanded, it, it pushed against natural limitations, uh, basically a lack of of prey, of food, and uh, and things like that. So it it really takes this kind of uh, uh, scientific and technological society to bring about the kind of uh, living standards that we have now, unless you're, you've got a very, very small population um, roaming around a quite large area. Yeah, I've, I've often said is, you know, if you if you want to talk about carbon footprint, right, talk about <laughs> hunter-gatherer societies, they have a pretty large carbon footprint because <laughs> it required such a large space. So anyway, um, so the, your chapter on war is is really fascinating to me. I'm, I'm very, very much a, a libertarian anti-war here in the States. And one of the things that struck me is that this quote, you said, wars could be started because someone refused to dip to a flag, salute colors, or follow page- diplomatic procedures. And I, j- I just want to know your, your assessment. I know you're aware of the current situation in the National Football League here in the States uh, of players not not standing for the national anthem. Is it very possible that that would have caused a war in previous times? <laughs> Uh, that's uh, that's a very good question, uh, a difficult counterfactual. Um, but I would say it's interesting how when you look at history, not just of war, but generally any kind of, of conflict, uh, is that it's often based on those kinds of uh, uh discussions or uh, displays of any kind of, uh, of resentment or something that uh, one side considers humiliating or, or so. Um, I mean, we've got stories about uh, how in, in Europe in the uh, sort of 16th, 17th century, uh, the, the death rates of uh, aristocrats was actually quite high. More than a quarter of English aristocrats faced a violent death uh, in the the 14th and 15th century because they were always ready to fight for their honor. Any kind of insult, anything that not sort of metaphorically dipping the flag to them, 
had to be uh, dealt with by force. And that's what you do in a violent society. A, uh, a violent society, you always have to show that you are ready to defend yourself. And then any kind of small insult could result in, in violence and even war. And it's a great testament to our times that we can take an insult with kind of a stiff upper lip and just say, ah, that's bad, rather than showing that we're willing to fight <laughs> over it. Sure. Uh, I want to connect something to our, our show opening. We have the, the quote that we play from Ronald Reagan, which we're, in which he says, uh, human imagination is the most pre- precious natural resource. Um, and one of the lines from your book is the most important resource is the human brain, a resource which is pleasantly reproducible. I love that line, by the way. Uh, and just wondering, so make that connection for us. How how is it that that the human brain is the most precious natural resource? What what's what's so important about uh, how how that works um, and, and toward this creation of wealth? Yeah, I, I love that Reagan quote, and that's really what human progress is all about. I would say our ways of. Um, I mean, to to pick another quote, it's the the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein who pointed out that progress is not really done by the early risers. It's done by lazy people looking for sort of a simpler solution to old problems (laughs) so that they can sleep late. Uh, and, And that's really it. I mean, we had all those resources that we now think are so precious from oil to aluminum to silicon and so on, they've always been there. It's not that we've sort of worked much harder. Uh, we've, we've had this labor, we've worked much harder before, longer hours and so on. It's the fact that we've come up with great new ways of using these resources in a smarter way than than we did before. And, and that's really what makes the whole difference. It's not production as such, it's productivity. The fact that we have more ideas and more capital and technology in every movement that we make, and therefore we can also produce more. In the Western world, we're perhaps, so perhaps we've increased our income some 20-fold over the last 200, 250 years. And uh, that's nothing you can do by just uh, walking faster or uh, working longer or anything like that. That's because we've invented the technology, the machines that produce more of all the things that we need. And that's human ingenuity. That's, uh, as, as I see it, the it's built on three freedoms in a way. The freedom to explore strange new knowledge, even though there might be traditions that you challenge or it might be incumbents that you challenge. The freedom to explore how things work. And then the freedom to experiment with this, with new business models and new technologies so that you, you've you got uh, your steam engine or your computer, which uh, multiplies your ability to produce something um, uh, again and again. Uh, and then the freedom to exchange this with other people, which makes it possible to use the the, the work, the ideas, the brains of other people, basically, to, to do more things. That's why... The, I think that the the most uh, most of the progress progress we see is a result of us having more access to other people's brains. And if we have access to other people's brains, we have access to more eyeballs looking at all the problems that we have, and more brains are hard at work in trying to solve them, come up with solutions. And that's why creativity is the 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 essential ingredient in in human progress. And. Want to uh, wrap my segment up and just say th- thank you for being a guest. Ron's going to take you through the fourth segment, but I want to ask you this: Do you think the the end of absolute poverty, while it may not be in reach, might be in sight? I I think it is. Uh, I mean, just since 1990, extreme poverty has been reduced from 37 percent globally to nine percent today. It's we've never seen such a rapid progress ever. So basically every day, 138,000 people are being lifted out of extreme poverty. And we know how to do it. And the only places where we still see extreme poverty are the places that are really uh, run in an awful authoritarian way. Uh, If we can get rid of that, of the the remaining dictatorships and uh, war zones, we we should be able to to deal with that. And uh, 
the problem, of course, is that we won't be able to get rid of all of that. That would be uh, hoping a bit too much because we always see, I mean, if you're an historian, you have to be somewhat optimistic because we've seen so much progress throughout history. But you also have to be a little bit of a cynic and realize that there are backlashes and there are people who want power over others. And I'm afraid we are going to see some of that as well. But in well-functioning places, I think we will we will see the end of extreme poverty within the next few decades. Outstanding. Well, I, I just want to wrap up with with uh, what I think is the, some of the, the most beautiful four sentences from your book. And uh, I wrote a note in the margin here about it, <clears throat> it being a four sentence brief moral justification of capitalism. So I'm going to re- read it out in, in the hopes that people will now buy your entire book because it's a great, great read. But as life expectancy increases and families have fewer children, the perceived value of each human life increases. Early death is no longer the norm. Many thinkers and historians have pointed out that the rise of free markets contributed to the long-term mindset of control and emotions. Market exchange meant that other individuals became potential assets as buyers, sellers, investors, and colleagues, and not just potential threats. In order to be successful in the free market, you have to understand your customer's point of view. So thank you so much for sharing that stuff with us. We look forward to to your last segment with Ron, but want to remind our listeners that you can get a hold of me or Ron by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, is thesoulofenterprise.com with show notes. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Johan Norberg, the author of Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. Johan, I love the the chapter on the next generation. You talk about the ultimate resources people, and I know uh, you've talked about that with Ed. I just wanted to point out that we always cite a study from the World Bank that 80% of the world's wealth, the developed world's wealth, resides in human capital. In this chapter, you talk about child labor and how that's gone down because of wealth increases and other reasons. But you tell the story of a 12-year-old girl's hands in an Indian village. Can can because I found that so poignant. Can you can you tell our listeners that story? Yeah, this was a um, real uh, eye opener uh, to me uh, when I I first uh, heard this story. It's because I think it symbolizes and summarizes much of the progress that's being done uh, around the world. It's um, actually a, um, a a friend of mine, a Swede who traveled to. Uh, 
India in the 1970s. And uh, he was shocked by what he saw, all the problems of the world, all the, uh, the despair, the hunger and other things. And he documented everything and taken lots of pictures of, of all of it. And um, then he went back in the 1990s and he visited the same places, the same villages and the same uh, people quite often. And uh, that's the interesting thing, comparing the two uh, things. Back then, he talked to Satu, a uh, young Indian girl, 12-year-old, and he took a picture of her hands. And they look like the hands of an old woman because she had worked all her life since she could stand up. She had to be out in the fields and taking care of the, the animals on the farms and, and working, working constantly. Uh, she didn't get an education or, or anything like that. And the fascinating thing is when he goes back in the 1990s and meets Satu again, uh, he meets her daughter, Seema, uh, when she's of the same age. And she takes a picture of her hands at the same age. And they are the hands of a young girl. Uh, they are the hands of someone who has not worked all her life, but instead she she got an education and she got to study and she now has the idea that she will uh, study to become a computer engineer, uh, which tells you something about the dramatic transition that is taking place. It's basically the hands of a girl who has not been robbed of a childhood and is therefore better prepared for adulthood than ever before. And it tells you something about the the generation that's growing up uh, today, even in low and middle income countries, the access they get to education, to ideas, to technologies, and their ability to lead long and healthy lives. You know, you had mentioned in the beginning about the emotion, some of the emotion, emotional ideas you have in this book that really convince people that the past wasn't maybe so great. And, and I just think that's another fantastic example. It's it's very moving. I, that was just a great story. In the epilogue, you, which is titled, So Why Are You Still Not Convinced? Um, I, you know, I think humans don't have to learn pessimism. It seems like it's kind of naturally ingrained in you know, books like you say, that the world's coming to an end or bestsellers. Um, this is one of the reasons I guess bookstores are filled with positive thinking books and, and, and all that because we have to learn it. Um, but you pointed out something that I thought was pretty interesting. You say things that happen in an instant are mostly bad. You think of an airplane crash or a terrorist attack or 9-11 or whatever. But when you look at some of the trends that you're talking about over kind of a long period of time or at least a longer period of time, these go unnoticed. And the and you mentioned the ignorance surveys by uh, conducted by Gapminder that most people are just really unaware of, of this incredible progress that's so well documented in your book. Do, do you find when you talk to audiences about your book that they're they're kind of shocked by these revelations? Yes, they are shocked because they have this, they have another impression about what's going on in the world. And one example of this was uh, when I published the book, I also published a, a chart which summarized what has happened in with four important indicators over the last 24, 25 years. Extreme poverty, global hunger, illiteracy, and child mortality. And they have all declined by around half. So it's a dramatic improvement. Uh, but then I published this on social media. And one of the first things that happened was that a British woman, she retweeted me and sent it out to all her followers with her own interpretation. She said, she wrote that this, you have to look at this horrible graph because it proves my sense that the world is going to hell. Uh, so she had basically <laughs> read the graph upside down. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people, she's not alone in this. A lot of people read the graphs up and charts upside down. And I think, this, and I contacted her and asked her about it. And she said, yeah, I pay close attention to the news. And I wake up every morning thinking that the world is falling apart. And I think that's it. If you have that impression, you only hear about the disasters, the crime, the horrors, the poverty. You're not really prepared for the data, for the statistics. And it seems very strange. 
but obviously, that's how the media works. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's shocking, if it's dramatic, then we hear about it. Uh, you never see a headline about how, well, now life expectancy since yesterday increased by another four hours. That's It's not a headline. Um, the fact that 138,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty, it's not a headline because it's not shocking, whereas a plane crash or a hurricane is more shocking and dramatic. And I, I think that this is, it's not really the fault of the media. This is our genetic programming. Uh, because once upon a time, life was nasty, brutish and short. And we had to know about all the things that could go wrong and had to look out for the next risk, the next problem constantly because it was probably of survival value. And those who really were on the lookout for everything that's bad, they survived and they passed on their genes to us and therefore also their stress hormones. So we're also obsessed with all the things that can go wrong. Now we only have a situation where it's easier than ever to find out about all those problems. But human horrors are not new. The cell phone camera is new. And that's the difference. There's always someone there to document all the things that go wrong nowadays. Right. You know, Johan, we only have a couple minutes, but I wanted to ask you, this book is not Pollyannish because you say this is not about complacency, but partly as a warning. Are you fearful of the future and, and this progress being derailed or do you see things that could derail this progress that we've had? Well, I, I see problems and uh, risks uh, since I'm also focused on everything that can go wrong in the world. Uh, but but definitely because I, this doesn't, doesn't happen automatically, all of this progress. It's based on these freedoms to explore and to experiment and to exchange and trade and, and so on. Uh, and I'm optimistic about what people do when they have those freedoms. But I'm not necessarily optimistic about whether they will have the freedom to do that because we always have this other mindset to control people and to uh, have this strong government, especially when people are afraid about the world. Then they want this strong leader to protect them against everything that could go uh, wrong. And I, I often fear things like a global trade war, uh, a resurgence of protectionism or or a real war uh, would have a, a terrible effect on all these uh, pillars of, of human progress. Uh, but on the other hand, I would add this. Um, there are now more people in more places than ever before who lead longer life and have better access to education, to technology, to ability to produce and trade than ever before. So I think that even if we mess things up in a few places, uh, I'm pretty convinced that someone else will pick up the torch and, and carry on with uh, new innovations and, uh, and progress in the future. So it, we might make stupid mistakes, but I, I do not despair about mankind as a whole, at least. Excellent. Well, on that optimistic note, well, Johan, thank you so much for appearing on the Solar of Enterprise. Folks, the book is Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. Please go buy it. It's a fantastic read. Again, thank thank you, Johan. Uh, Johan, thank you. What, what's, up, uh, what's up next Ed, next week, Ed? Uh, next week, Ron, we are going to do our 2017 Year in Review. All right. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.